Well, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, let me invite you once again to turn to the book of Genesis as we are in a series through this first book of the Christian Scriptures. And this morning, we we make the transition from chapter 2 to chapter 3 as we're going to look at uh, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. And so let me invite you as you're able... Let's stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's Word. Again, I'm reading from Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1, wherein Moses faithfully records, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said... Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of His Word. And let us join again in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, as we stand before the open Bible and we stand underneath the teaching of Thy Word, we ask, O God, that You would make wise the simple, that You would give us illumination, that You would open our eyes, unstop our ears, loosen our minds and hearts. We ask this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, in Genesis chapter 2, we read about the special creation of the first man. How God formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed life into him. And then we also saw that though that man... Uh, was somehow incomplete. And so the Lord, in His goodness and in His mercy, created the woman to be the perfect complement for the man, to be an help meet for Him, as Moses uh, puts it in uh, Genesis 2.18. And so Genesis chapters 1 and chapters 2 have provided for us a a picture of what we call the pre-fall world. 
or the pre-fall creation. What a beautiful and wonderful world it was. If this fallen world in which we live is filled with so much beauty and so many things that bring us joy and delight, imagine what a world unspoiled by sin and rebellion must have been like. It's a beautiful world we live in. The creation is so beautiful. Food tastes good. Oh, but it was even better before there was sin, before the fall. Man, in particular, before the fall, was in a state of what we called innocency. That pristine state is captured in the last verse of chapter 2, verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And so they were in this pristine state of innocence. that They, they knew good, but did not know evil. And so uh, they were in this, this, this blessed uh, state. But the Lord had also given to man a command. And it's there in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And this command had included a generous provision, a clear prohibition, and a somber warning. And so if you look back at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. That is the generous provision that God made for man in this command. But then there's a clear prohibition. Look at verse 17 of Genesis 2. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. Generous provision, clear prohibition, and then a somber warning at the end of verse 17. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And so, man might well have continued to live in Eden. Man might well have continued to eat of the tree of life from which he was not forbidden to eat. And he might have lived forever in the paradise that was on earth. But this was not to be. For Scripture tells us that man fell from the state in which he was created by sinning against God and by eating the forbidden fruit. This cast man down from that state of innocence and into a state of sin and misery. Sin always carries with it consequences. And the consequences in this case would affect not only the first man and the first woman, but it would also affect all of us who have come from them by ordinary generation, including every man, woman, and child gathered in this meeting house today. It's an incredible providence that what we read this morning from, from Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, that lays it out. Death came through one man, 
and life came through one man. Death came through the first Adam. Life will come through the second Adam. What we call, uh, what is described, beginning here in Genesis 3, as the fall. The fall of those whom we call our first parents. Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. We call it a fall because man was in an exalted state. State of innocence. And the, the entrance of disobedience to God's command brought man lower and spoiled and tarnished that which God had given him. And so uh, the old New England Puritan primer uh, puts it like this in teaching the letter A. In Adam's fall, we send all. And so there was a fall that took place and we all have been uh, ones who have received by ordinary generation the consequences of that sin in ourselves. We call this original sin. As David puts it in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. As we look at this passage today, we approach it not only as a historical lesson, teaching us what really happened in the Garden of Eden, and teaching us about our common human condition, but we see it also as a practical, spiritual lesson about how sin continues to operate, and how it continues to entice us to disobey God's commands, and to spoil God's good original design for us. So we look at it historically to understand what happened and why we're in the state we're in, the state of sin and misery, but also practically and spiritually how sin still operates today. With that, let's turn now to our passage. And if you look at Genesis 3, uh, the old uh, authorized version translators, King James Version translators, grouped together, actually, verses 1 through 21 as one paragraph or one thought unit. Uh, and so they, they, they saw a unity in really the whole of all that's being described in verses 1 through 21. We, however, are going to be taking this inspired narrative in smaller, more bite-sized portions and today we're going to look at, at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, because such an important event, I think, deserves to be looked at uh, uh, perhaps more slowly, more intentionally. And so uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. And we can divide our, our passage today, Genesis 3, 1 through 7, into three parts. The first part is verses 1 through 5. And this describes the dialogue with the tempter. The dialogue with the tempter. And then secondly, in verse 6, we have the capitulation to sin. The capitulation to sin. And then finally, in verse 7, we have the beginning descriptions of the consequences of sin. And that will extend uh, into what we shall, shall read uh, beyond verse 7. So let's look at each of these three parts of the text and meditate upon it spiritually today. The first part, the longest part, is verses 1 through 5. And this is a description of the dialogue with the tempter. 
This opening section describes a conversation that takes place between the first woman who had just been made from Adam's rib, from Adam's side, and the serpent. And so Moses begins in Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now we need to pause here and observe that Moses, guided by the Holy Spirit, tells us this important account with a brevity of words. And that's so often the case within the Bible. Uh, Often very important things are told with uh, a, a sparsity of words. Uh, with much discretion, which, with much brevity. A lot is said. There's a lot more we would like to know, quite frankly. We would like perhaps more details about this or about that. But we can affirm a principle that is called the sufficiency of Scripture. And we are told here everything, uh, not that we would, might want to know, but all that we need to know. Uh, for salvation and godliness. And uh, this is one of those places where we have this serpent just appearing on the scene. And we went, wait a second, where's the, what's the background for this? This serpent seems like he comes out of nowhere. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. We, we can presume that this serpent was one of those creatures made upon day six of creation. As you look back at uh, chapter 1 and verses 24 and 25, it describes the creatures that were made to live upon the land. And of the three kinds, the cattle uh, were, are mentioned uh, first, then the creeping thing in chapter 1 verse 24, and then the beast of the earth after his kind. Likewise in verse 25, there's sort of a repetition of this, the cattle... Every, and then everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And so um, we have this, this creature would probably be lumped in with the creeping things of the earth. And he is said here to have been more subtle than any other beast. Various modern translations render this same word in Hebrew that's rendered here as subtle with words like clever cunning, and crafty. There's an emphasis upon the fact that this serpent was a creature that was made by God. It's a creature which the Lord God had made. And it is this serpent who will serve as the tempter. It is this serpent who will serve as the means by which the first woman and the first man will be tempted to disobey the commands of God. Christian interpreters have long suggested that there is more here than meets the eye. And that behind this creature is an even more crafty and diabolical intelligence which we refer to as Satan, the accuser or the adversary or the devil. The great North African theologian Augustine of Hippo said, what is in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. And we get an insight into uh, what happens here in Genesis 3 
from a passage that appears in Revelation, the book of Revelation chapter 12. So we have the first book of the Christian scriptures and we have light that is shed on it from the last book of the Christian scriptures from the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7, there's a description there of an event from the past. We're not told when it was. But it is called by John the Apostle as he writes the book of Revelation, a war in heaven. And at the end of that war in heaven, John says this in Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. And he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Notice that this passage speaks of the devil or Satan as the great dragon, and as that old serpent. And notice also that it says there in Revelation 12.9 that he and his angels were cast out of heaven. What is described in Revelation 12 is never clearly narrated anywhere within the scriptures. It's not clearly narrated for us in the book of Genesis or anywhere else. But the context suggests that there was an angelic fall that preceded the human fall. This is assumed in the scriptures. Though never clearly narrated, there are many hints of this throughout the Bible. Let me share one Old Testament example and one New Testament example. First, the Old Testament example would be found in the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 14, the prophet speaks there of a fall of an exalted creature named Lucifer. And so in Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12 it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? Verse 13. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Isaiah 14, 15. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. So again, it tells us, gives us a hint of this event. The example from the New Testament comes from the book of 2 Peter. And there the Apostle Peter spoke of some rebellious angels who are kept bound awaiting the final judgment. And so if you look at 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, Peter says, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. The whole counsel of God and what we call the rule of faith, which is drawn from the uniform teaching of scriptures, inform us to understand all of scripture. 
We know that God, for example, is all benevolent. God is all good. As Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. He is the standard for goodness. And we know that He is never the source of evil. As John put it in 1 John 1, 5, he declared that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And we know also from the whole counsel of God that God never tempts man. And so in James 1.13, James wrote, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. We can only ascertain here, not that God made the serpent as a wicked creature, for he would be then the source of evil, but we can only ascertain that Satan somehow manifested himself as the serpent in order to tempt mankind to sin. If, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan may be transformed into an angel of light, he may also masquerade as a serpent. God did not bring this about, but he permitted it according to His sovereign wisdom. It was, again, as Calvin put it in his commentary, a test of man's obedience. And it was a test which man failed. Notice next what the old serpent says to the woman. We're in chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said. Let's pause there. Many interpreters have taken note of the fact that Satan's attack is based primarily throughout this account on his challenging of God's word. He attempts to deny, to confuse, and to twist the words that God has spoken to the first man. Christ refers to Satan in John 8 and verse 44 by saying, He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. The serpent then proceeds to tell three lies to the woman in order to entice her to disobey God's command. He tells her three lies. Let's look at the first of these three lies that's there at the end of verse 1. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Well, what he does is he says, Didn't God say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? But this is not, in fact, by any means what God said. God's command, remember, made a generous provision for man. 
Look back again at chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. God allowed man to eat of all the trees except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet now Satan is trying to twist, to twist God's word and to put it forward to the woman to say that God had commanded, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. This is one of Satan's oldest tricks. One of his oldest tricks is to make the generosity and goodness of God to man appear petty and strict. Think about it. God has given to most typically developed men the capacity for speaking a myriad of words. We have this gift of language and we have so many words that we can say and so many words that we can use. But in the Ten Commandments, God tells us, do not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. And what do men so often crave to do? They have thousands of words they might use. And you can tell. They get some kind of kick, don't they? Out of taking God's precious name in vain. That's one of Satan's oldest tricks. Think about this. Think about the fact that God has given to man six days in every week in which he may be involved in lawful labors and recreations And God only asks that one day in seven be given to rest and to worship. And what do men do? They begin to resent that. And they say, I want that day too. That's my day too. Why should God get that day? He's stingy. He's holding back from me a day that I want for myself. Think about a man who is given the abundant blessing of a good wife to be a help meet for him. And what does he so often do? He wants another woman instead. Think of a man who is given an abundance of possessions. All that he needs to live. And what does he do? Rather than be content with what God has given him, he covets what his neighbor has. This is sin 101. This is the devil's tactics 101. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of any tree of the garden. See, he wants to to stress the things that that God in His wisdom uh, would command and question and question really the goodness of God in the provisions that He has made. Notice the woman's reply to this first lie in verses 2 and 3. She has enough sense at this point to know that the serpent's words are false. 
And so she uh, begins to correct him in verse 2 by telling him, look at verse 2, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. So she did attempt to correct that what he said wasn't true. He said, God, didn't God tell you you can't eat of any of these trees? He said, wait, she said, wait a second. Think back to 2.16. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. And so she begins to, to correct him. But when she continues in the next verse, in verse 3, uh, she says this, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And if you look at the statement that she makes, and you compare it to what God actually said in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, you see that quite a bit of confusion has entered into her thinking and to her in, in articulation of it. Some things she says are right, but some things are off kilter. For one thing, according to, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 9, when God had uh, created the Garden of Eden, it said there that the tree of life was the tree that was set in the midst of the garden. And now, here, without specifically naming the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the placement of it in the garden is not specifically told us, but her description seems to imply that God had prohibited them from eating from the tree of life. See, that was a confusion. For another, she notes the prohibition against the eating of the forbidden fruit, though never naming it explicitly, and the warning of death as the consequence... This generally fits with what we read in chapter 2, verse 17. But then she adds something that's not recorded in God's instruction. That is, she adds that God had told them not only not to eat of it, but also, neither shall ye touch it. And so this would be an example of what we might call legalism in its seed form. Adding to God's word prohibitions or commands that he has not said. And so we're meant to see here that there is confusion. And this type of confusion over God's word, what God has said, will lead to heartache for the first human beings. The mention by the first woman of the sober warning of death for disobedience to God's command, elicits from the serpent, in verse 4, the second lie of the three that he will utter. Look at verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. This lie is an exact and diametrically opposite statement of what is in God's Word. It's a complete denial of God's Word. Because remember, what had God said? Look back at chapter 2, verse 17. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And this is yet another of the serpent's oldest strategies. And that is to deny the consequences of sin. 
If you do this, if you disobey God's command, you will not be hurt or damaged. You will certainly not experience death, either physically or spiritually. Of course, this denies various principles that are articulated throughout the Scriptures, like that by Paul in Romans 6.5 when he said that the wages of sin is death. Or in Galatians 6.7 when he said, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. But you see, Satan wants man to believe that sin, disobedience against God, will have no consequences. Satan wants man to believe that he might travel the broad way of sin that leads to destruction and have no toll to pay in the end. Everything will be okay. Satan likes to put forward the idea of victimless sin. But remember in Psalm 51 when David had committed adultery and murder. In his prayer of confession, he said to God, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Disobedience against God's commands is, is wrong. Whether anybody knows about it, whether anybody, other, other human beings injured by it, it's still an offense against God. The consequences of sin is death. This leads to the third lie in verse 5, which is a sort of kind of a continuation of the second. This lie basically consists in the falsehood that God's command came not out of the Lord's wise and benevolent concern to keep men from evil and death, but from some confining, controlling concern to keep men from being like gods themselves. And so Satan dissembles in verse 5 as he utters this third lie. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When he says ye shall be as gods, the word there in Hebrew is actually Elohim, which is the name for God. It's typically used throughout the Hebrew Bible. You, you will be like God. You will be a little God. And no good and evil. Satan here pitches sin as a kind of enlightenment. Sin as the opening of one's eyes. This lie strikes at an ancient weakness in man. To desire to throw off the one true God and make himself instead to be God. He wants to rule his own life. He wants to make up his own rules. It's been said that at the root of most of those who call themselves atheists is simply the fact that they do not want to live by God's revealed law. I've heard a Christian apologist say that that the heart of most people who say that they're atheists, if you dig deep enough, you'll find some desire to break God's moral law in their lives. They want to throw off 
They want to throw off the moral law of God, and so they'll just try to fool themselves into saying that God isn't. And the odd thing is they'll spend the rest of their lives talking against this God that they don't supposedly don't even believe in. Their actions belie the truth. As the psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Remember what Lucifer said in Isaiah 14, 14? I will be like the Most High. Satan even pitches sin as some kind of moral achievement. If man will only disobey God's command, he can know good and evil. But remember what we said last time, that man in a state of innocence knew only the good. He was not tainted even by the knowledge of sin. It was not an improvement for man to know evil, as Satan falsely suggests, but it was a degradation. Satan, therefore, is presented to us, especially in this third lie, as being like a con man, as being like a snake oil salesman, as being like a flim-flam artist. He uses the old bait-and-switch method. He promises enlightenment, and he gives spiritual blindness. He promises freedom and gives bondage and slavery. He promises wisdom and delivers foolishness. He promises warmth and gives icy coldness. He promises community and gives loneliness. I bet the prodigal son in the far country had lots of friends until the famine came and he ran out of money. He promises satisfaction and he gives starvation. He promises wealth and he gives poverty. He promises life and he gives death. He promises a party and a good time. And he delivers a funeral. These are the, the tactics of Satan. And we see them on display in this first account of man's fall into sin. Let's move on to the second part, which is verse 6. And I label this the capitulation. The capitulation. Sadly, in verse 6, we see the giving over of the first man and the first woman to the wiles of the serpent. And one of the sad things we see here is how easily they surrender without really giving up so much as a fight against Satan. And so Moses records in verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat. 
We see here the woman succumbing to the deceptions of desires. Disordered desires. She wants the fruit that will satisfy her hunger, her appetite. She wants that which looks good, which is pleasant to the eye. She wants to be made wise. The Apostle John will later capture the misguided spirit of the first woman in all sinners since. At this very point, when he writes of sin in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And really, those three things are laid out right here in verse 6. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And then, in verse 6, it continues and we see that the first man, alongside of the woman who was given to him as a help meet for him, also breaks the command of God. Look at verse 6. And gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. As you might imagine, there's been a lot of discussion over the years among Christians as to the significance of the fact that the woman is the first to eat of the forbidden fruit and then to offer it to the man also. The Apostle Paul certainly took note of this when he wrote in 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14, For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. But, when one looks back at this scene, one must see the failure of both. The man, perhaps, did not convey strongly and clearly enough to the woman the commands that he had been given. Remember, when you look back at Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the woman had yet been created. If she was confused about what God had said to Adam, perhaps the problem was that Adam had not properly communicated it to her. And that's why her articulation of her understanding of what God had said in verses 2 and 3 was so confused. And so the, 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 the responsibility again falls upon the both of them. Moses records no protest on the man's part. She partook. She offered the fruit to him. He did not protest. He went along all too willingly. The thing that stands out in the rest of the Holy Scripture is the fact that when this fall is mentioned later in the Bible, the burden of responsibility is not placed on the woman's shoulders but on the man's. Consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22, when he wrote, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Notice that Paul didn't say, For as in Eve all die. And he didn't even say, as in, as in Adam and Eve all die. 
But he said, for as in Adam all die, he placed the responsibility plainly on the shoulders of the man as the head of the first household. Let's turn now to verse 7. The beginning of the consequences of sin. Verse 7. Moses tells us in verse 7, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. That opening, and the eyes of them both were opened, echoes somewhat the enlightenment that had been promised by Satan. Yes, their eyes were open, but it wasn't the enlightenment that the serpent had promised. Their eyes were not open to some higher godlike truth. Their eyes were open to the fact that they were filled with shame and they knew that they were naked. This is in contrast, isn't it, to what we read about man in the state of innocency in chapter 2, verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now that they had sinned, now that they had fallen, they had been exposed, and for the first time, a, a man had, a sinful man had a rightful sense of his guilt and shame before a holy and righteous God. We've all felt it, haven't we? Even the so-called atheist has felt it, although he tries to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and hold it back. He feels guilt and shame because he breaks the moral law of a God he says he doesn't even believe in. At the end of verse 7, Moses notes how the first man and woman apparently attempted to offer their own remedy for their newfound guilt and shame for their sin, and that they sewed fig leaves together and made what the King James Version calls aprons. Some modern translations render this as coverings. And one popular modern translation gives it, I think, the terrible translation of loincloths. They tried to make their own provisions uh, for dealing with their shame. And we'll see later on in this account, if you look at verse 21, it's God who will make provisions for them in this fallen state, in this new state of sin and misery. And He will make provisions for them not by giving to them uh, the leaves that are put together to be an apron. But it says in verse 21 that the Lord God made coats of skins and clothed them. We'll talk about this when we get to that part of the passage. But presumably, this meant that blood had to be shed and there had to be a death to cover them. Well, friends, we've worked through this sad passage, this beginning of the account of the fall. And I hope the Spirit has already made some connection points, but let me, just, let me just reflect on a few things we might apply from this. Here are some applications. First, we're reminded in this passage of the reality that we live in a fallen world. We're, we're reminded of the reality of evil. We're reminded of the reality that there is an adversary. There is one who is called Satan. 
And we are reminded that we are engaged in an unseen spiritual battle over the lives of men and women. As the Apostle Paul uh, writes in Ephesians 6.12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We don't want to enter into the errors of charismatics who talk so much about devil. They talk more about the devil than they do about God. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe in the power of God. We believe we have nothing to fear from the devil, but we don't ignore the reality that he's there. That he's there and that there's a spiritual battle that's taking place. Secondly, we are informed in this passage of what the old men might have called, again, the devices or the tactics of Satan. So, beyond this being a historical lesson of what really happened, the practical spiritual lesson is we learn here what Satan tries to do. What does he try to do? First, he attempts to deny, to confuse, and to twist the words of God. Yea, hath God said... Satan does not want you to know the Scriptures. He doesn't want you to attend church and read the Bible privately, to hear preaching and teaching upon it, to read good, solid Christian books about it. He does not want you to learn how to uh, discern the truth, uh, how to uh, rightly divide the Word of God. He wants you to stay away. He wants you to stay away from this. Because the more confused and ignorant you are, the better you are to be fooled the better you are to be led along the wrong way. He will tell you that God has not been generous and gracious to you, but God has been stingy and flinty with you. He will deny that disobedience has any consequences. He will tell you that faith in the one true God is a burden And it's something that's a confinement. And He can offer you lightness and freedom. He will tell you to satisfy your appetite. To reach for everything that looks shiny to the eye. And He will tell you that you could be made wise by your own gutted out efforts. Till you become a starving, dissatisfied, empty fool. James writes in James 4.7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Thirdly, this passage, we can't stop here, can we? Because we, we're not living at this stage. We're living at the t- after the time when Christ has come. And so we must look back for a second and we must have brought to our minds that we're The first Adam failed. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, will prevail. In the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one of the first things they tell us about the ministry of Christ is after he was baptized, he went out in the wilderness. And the Spirit took him there. God allowed it. God permitted it. And 
Satan had at him for 40 days. For 40 days, Satan had at him. And he laid before him various temptations. He told our Lord to to turn stones into bread. And Christ said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He took him to Jerusalem and took him up to the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, throw yourself off. He even quoted scripture and said, the angels will have charge over you. And Christ responded, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then he took him and he took him up on a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I have the power to give you all this. If you will just bow down and worship me, all this can be yours if you'll just compromise. And Christ responded, again, quoting the Old Testament correctly, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. And you know what? Christ did that not only for those 40 harrowing days in the wilderness. But he did it every other day, minute, and second of his whole life. Where we failed, Christ prevailed. So the Apostle Paul can sum it up in Hebrews 4.15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And then there is the great exchange for us. Our sins laid upon Christ. Christ's righteous life given to us. Our guilt and shame taken away by the shed blood of Christ by His covering, by His offering for us. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give Thee thanks for this uh, pristine record, this infallible record of what happened historically but also the insights as to the battle that still goes on. And each of us can testify to this battle in our own hearts, sometimes moment by moment, day by day, week by week. Oh God, we give Thee thanks for Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior. And we give Thee thanks that that we uh, have been redeemed, though we are fallen, that we have been redeemed through the blood of Christ. And so help us to to come to a greater knowledge of that, a greater appreciation of that today, greater admiration for our Lord. We ask this in His name. Amen.